Today's reading is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Anna. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you are new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're glad that you are here. I have one other uh, sort of a reminder announcement coming this. Oh, yeah. If you're in fourth through sixth grade, thank you for worshiping with us. And I know that since Ben is standing out there, you'd probably rather stay in here, but you need to go with Ben and and Dave. So, all right. It's so easy to pick on Ben. I just, I love it. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, reminder. Coming this Wednesday, we are starting our summer midweek Bible study. It's, a, it's a, called Messiah. We're going to be studying uh, actually half of the New Testament. Um, but it's a great format that uh, one of our elders, Nick Oviedo, came up with. And Tyler Thompson, myself, and Nick will be kind of leading that for eight weeks. And it starts this coming Wednesday. It'll be from 6.30 to 7.45, maybe 8 o'clock. There will be dinner from 6.30 till 7, and then we do the study. There's going to be like a 15-minute devotional, and then we break up into our our table groups, and we'll have some conversations, and uh, it'll be a great study. There's also child care available, and so if you're planning on coming, and I hope you are, um, it it would be good if you RSVP'd so we know how much... um, I wasn't sure where I was now. Oh, yeah, Redemption Arcadia. Okay, good. Um, uh, so, it, so that we know how, much, uh, how many child care workers and food to get. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really struggling. Can we pray, and then I'll get into the sermon today. Yeah, Lord God, I just pray that um, uh, this word that Anna read for us would, would land today, uh, that your gospel would be proclaimed, your word would be taught, and that hearts and minds would be open, not only open, but transformed uh, during this time. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit right now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, come Wednesday night. Now, we're in our second week of a 13-week series going through the book of 1 John. And again, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and in front of you, even though it's just two verses uh, this morning, because there's a lot there. So have a Bible in front of you so that you can test the spirits and follow along. And I'll give you a little bit of review so that if you weren't here last week, you kind of know where we are. Uh, last week, we talked about an introduction into the, into the letter. We, we talked about how it's the Apostle John who wrote this letter. Uh, probably in 90 A.D. or the early 90s A.D., and that it's a general letter. It's, it's a letter that was meant to circulate uh, around to many different faith communities and churches all over uh, what was then known as Asia Minor, what, what might be pr- uh, present-day Turkey and possibly um, even Greece. Uh, we talked about the introduction of the letter, the first four verses, and how it was a highly compressed and, and dense introduction where John testifies not only to his own personal knowledge, but to the personal knowledge of those who were with him as to Jesus' humanity and deity. 
He's already pushing back against the false teaching that was going around in the churches in the late first century uh, that was claiming that possibly Jesus wasn't really human, that there was no incarnation. And so he's already pushing back on that. He's saying, no, Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. Otherwise, his redemption is not real or effective. And we need to understand that. Uh, And then we unpacked the three lies and the one truth that he communicates to his readers in the rest of chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, 10. Lie number one was, uh, if we walk in darkness while we claim to have fellowship with God, we continue to walk in darkness in unrepentant sin, but we claim outwardly that we have fellowship with God. Lie number two is that we say that we're not sinners. We say that we don't have a, a sin nature, that we're basically good and that it just maybe occasionally we do the wrong thing. So we're wrong about our nature. And then lie number three is that we say we haven't sinned. When we have obviously sinned a, an activity or a behavior that is ungodly or uh, an offense against somebody and then we claim that we're in denial, we claim that we haven't done it. And then he gives us the one truth, that that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And to walk with him means that we're going to walk with our life exposed, which is actually a good thing. We don't like it when things get exposed, but actually that's where healing and reality occur. And that's where redemption and salvation occur, is when we bring things uh, into the light. Uh, One of the things we mentioned last week, and I'll just show you this week, as a matter of fact, is that... Uh, John seems to write in a way uh, where he puts his purpose in the back of his documents, at the end of his documents. So, uh, for instance, in the Gospel of John, you don't, uh, you don't know exactly why he's written that until you get to chapter 20, where he writes this in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he writes the Gospel of John to people so that they might believe in Jesus, so they might come to know Jesus, so they might put their faith and trust in him. And then he writes 1 John for a slightly different reason, and we find that at the end of the 1 John letter in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He writes, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he writes the gospel so that people would believe, and he writes to believers in 1 John so that they would would know, that they're encouraged, that they would have assurance. And he writes those who believe to say, This is also what your life should look like as you walk it out if you are actually in Christ. That's why we had the three lies and the one truth last week, because he's he's also getting at uh, what you might call the fruit of righteousness all throughout this uh, letter. So, just two verses today, but I will tell you, there's a lot to say about them, and I'm hoping that this is really encouraging, because I'm very encouraged by these two verses. Let me reread them. He writes, my little children, I'll talk about that, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Believe it or not, there's a lot there. So the first question you might ask is, what's this little children 
thing about? Is he just writing to the children's ministry of these churches and talking to the kids there? No, no, he's not. This is about John's, his, just his heart for his people. And he considers his people anybody who is a brother and sister in Christ. And so he writes them with this level of compassion and empathy. He's pastoral. He loves these people. At the end of his life, the, the historian Jerome tells us that he would go into his church in Ephesus and he would just preach about how in Christ, because Christ has loved us, even when we were unlovable, he says we should love each other. He has this incredible uh, emotion for other people. And he loves his people. It's an understanding that John has a responsibility to his brothers and sisters. And it's a responsibility that is nothing short of what a parent should feel for their biological children. He feels that way about his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is also part of the fellowship or the koinonia that we talked about last week. This feeling of community and connectedness that believers in Christ should have because we have this faith in Christ, because we're walking in Christ, because we believe in the word of God poured out through Jesus Christ. Uh, J.I. Packer, great scholar, says it this way, our understanding of Christianity will never be better than the, our embrace of the principle of adoption. We need to understand that God has taken us and embraced us through Jesus Christ. He has adopted us, and we are now his. And all of the rights and privileges of that adoption come with that. We talked about that a few weeks ago in the midst of our Romans 8 series and how important it is to understand adoption. And Packer says, uh, our understanding of Christianity will never be fulfilled in a way that, that helps us to know who Jesus truly is until we understand that we have been adopted by him. And there's no, there's no way to cut that adoption off once we have come to him. That's a beautiful thing. But then it gets really interesting. Because he writes and says, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. I don't want you to sin. That's not a good thing that you would sin. And this is looking back at the end of chapter 1 at those three lies and the truth. He says, look, if you claim to have fellowship while you're walking in the darkness, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, you're going to continue sinning. That's a problem. If you claim that you don't have a sin nature, you're going to sin. That's just a problem. If you claim that you never sin, if you're in denial about the fact that you do sin, that's a problem as well. All of those lies will lead you into deeper and deeper sin. But walk in the light, which is God through Jesus Christ, because in him there is no darkness at all, and that will help you to not sin. But then right away, he goes to the truth that we are still living here in this dark and fallen world, and that, and that, and that we're living in our flesh and that we still have this nature, even though we're redeemed by Christ, and there's tension there, that's Romans chapter 7, he goes to that and he says, but if anyone does sin, this should be so encouraging, because all of us do. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. He introduces uh, something that actually agrees with the antithesis of those last two lies that were in nature, we're sinful and that we are sinners. It agrees with that. But if we do sin, we have an advocate. And this advocate is better than anything or anyone ever. And this is yet another version of this courtroom scene that we have talked about. Not only, well, I'm going to talk about it today, but not only have we talked about it today, we talked about it in the last two series that we've done. 
We talked about this imagery of the courtroom during Isaiah 40 through 55. We talked about it during Romans chapter 8 as well. This imagery of, of us standing in a courtroom before God is the ultimate judge is all throughout the Bible. So I would guess that this is probably pretty important for us to understand. In each case, you and I eventually, someday, will stand before God and Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, is the one who defends us. That word advocate could also be translated as defense attorney. He's our defense attorney. And so when God, when we stand before God and, and he says, guilty or not guilty, we don't even have to stand up if we're in Christ. Jesus gets up in front of us and says, not guilty. Next case. And that's the end of it. Jesus is our defense attorney. He's our advocate. He stands in for us if we are in him. It is a beautiful gift that we have in Christ. And here's the thing. Jesus never loses a case. He's better than Perry Mason. One of you got that reference. I'm sorry. He's, he's better, than, better than the guys on suits. I don't know. Anyway, he never loses a case. And so if you're in him, that's a, a really good thing. The problem is you have to come to him. You have to come to him, embrace him, and not only embrace him as your Lord and Savior, but get to know him. You've got to follow him. You've got to be engaged with him. And this is a non-negotiable. There is no passive way to know Jesus. You have to know him. It's non-negotiable. There's no gray area, no tweeners, no almost, no, oh, that's, that's close enough. You're in proximity to Jesus, that's close enough. No, you have to be in Christ, and Christ in you. And because of Jesus' flawless record before God the Father, John ends this verse, verse 1, by calling our advocate Jesus Christ the righteous. So let's talk a little bit about the word righteous and its use here. The Greek word means innocent of any wrongdoing, sin, or wickedness, and never committed any act of unholiness, and is in nature holy. Now, let me just ask you, can anyone raise their hand and say, never committed sin, I am holy as God is holy? Anybody, can anybody do that? And if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask people who know you, okay? I'm going to get a little testimony, all right? So, so we're not righteous, but Jesus is. That's why we need Jesus to be our advocate, to stand before us, in us, for us. That's why it has to be Jesus. Because of Genesis 3 and original sin, you and I are not righteous and holy. Our nature is bent towards sin. But he stands in for us. He's our advocate, our salvation, and our redemption. And it's all in him. Now we get to verse 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Ooh, propitiation. Looky here, we got a $75 theological word. Anybody want to come up here and just off the top of your head explain what propitiation is? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, I had to look it up. Okay. And I do this for a living. So anyway, propitiation. So let's talk about that. The first thing I have to tell you about propitiation is about five years ago, it was just a $28 word. But with inflation, it's now a $75 <laughs> word. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. What does it mean? Uh, propitiation is that which, is a, which appeases and satisfies an otherwise unpayable debt. Satisfaction for a debt that specifically turns away wrath. So this has to do with God. 
and it's satisfaction for an unpayable debt. You and I are not righteous. We're sinful by nature. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to claim redemption or salvation or good enough or close enough or whatever it is. The problem in our world today is that many people are walking around with the false assurance that they are Christians without any understanding of their true need for Jesus because they think that somehow they are good enough and Jesus is there just to take up the slack. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's, it's that common understanding that people have that their good deeds are surely going to outweigh their bad deeds. Now, they haven't been keeping track. There's no ledger they have. They're just sure that at the end of their life, they're going to stand before God and they're going to go, see, I'm at 50.1%. My bad deeds are at 49.9%. I'm in. And God's going to say, where's Jesus? You're going to go, well, I don't know. And then that's it. Some of you look at it like the PGA Tour if you're a golfer, okay? It's like, I'm, I'm going to make the cut. Of course I'm going to make the cut. You know, in, in that goodness versus sinfulness, I'm better than Tiger Woods. Of course I'm going to make the cut. Here's how another author describes it. He, he describes it as the McDonald's salvation. Does anybody know what the McDonald's salvation is? Now, you don't have to raise your hand because I'm sure some people in here have done this. I've certainly done this. It's when you go into McDonald's and you order a Big Mac and a large order of fries, and then to balance out the Big Mac and the large order of fries, you, you order a tub of Diet Coke. And you say, I can eat those because this is canceling that out. Okay? So that's how you get saved is you're just, you drink enough Diet Coke of good deeds that'll cancel out the Big Macs and large orders of fries. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's why Jesus has to be righteous. And if we're not in Christ, there's wrath. There's wrath. We need to understand that because we have this debt to God, God isn't just inconvenienced or troubled by sin, but he is wrathful about that sin. I know we hate that word, and in this current cultural context, I'm probably not even allowed to say it or supposed to say it, but this is the word that Scripture uses to, to describe God's divine displeasure for sin. So it is real. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But also, in the book of Romans, even though Paul tells us that truth, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness, eventually he gets to that part of his letter where he says, but Jesus, but Jesus. This is good news. It's always pointing towards Jesus. What do you think this sermon is about today? Anybody? Jesus. It's about Jesus. Because Jesus came and lived the perfect life, and because he's God, and he's inherently holy and righteous, he's the one who can pay that debt and turn away the wrath of God. He is our propitiation. And he is a great gift that God gives to us. So if you haven't already, why not just accept the gift? It seems really silly to leave a gift unclaimed and unwrapped. I, I don't know if... I'm guessing most of you have been through a scenario like this. I know our family has. Uh, Christmas morning, if you're a Christmas morning opening presents family, Christmas morning, you go out and there's this wild frenzy of opening all the gifts and everything and, and there's just junk everywhere and you're trying to figure out where you're going to put all this stuff. And then somebody, somebody looks a little harder underneath the tree and there's one more present under the tree. What happens? Does the family go, whatever? 
No, everybody's diving for that gift to see who gets that last gift. It's like the bonus fry in the bag of, of McDonald's french fries, you know? Everybody's diving for it. You never leave a gift unwrapped. Why would you leave this gift unwrapped? It's right there, waiting for you. you know, these last, these two verses and the specific and helpful words that John uses in these verses remind us that running away from God when we sin, which honestly is our default mode, we run away from him when we sin. But he's reminding us that running away from God when we sin is not necessary, nor is it helpful. Run to God when we sin. But here's why we run. Emma Indahl writes this. Humans believe that running gives us some sense of control. That's just true. We feel like we're in control when we're running. The problem is, is that God is still sovereign which means he's still in control even when we run. So we might as well just run to him. One of the things that John is pointing out is that while Christians do not live in sin, they never become completely sinless. That's a challenge that we have to deal with. So we need Jesus, and Jesus delivers. Leon Morris, the scholar, provides great insight here. He writes this, The closer we come to God, the more sensitive our consciences become And the more we realize that we are sinners, a paradoxical consequence of this is that we Christians now come to appreciate the fact that in our sinful state, we are unworthy to approach our holy God. And so we need help. We need an intervener, an advocate. And John assures us that we have the help we need in Jesus. So then this last little clause in verse 2, what about this saying for the whole world? I will tell you that in uh, church Circles, in seminary circles, in academic circles, this little phrase, sins for the whole world, has caused so much angst and debate and conversation and even arguments. This little phrase here. So we need to talk about it. So what does it mean? First of all, you need to read the rest of the Bible. This does not mean that everyone is or will be saved. There are clearly people who have rejected God and are not saved. That's not what it means. It's overwhelmingly clear from the rest of Scripture that one must come to Jesus in repentance and faith and embrace him as Savior in order to be saved. Here's the second thing it's not. I've heard, this, I've heard it explained this way before. It's not hyperbole. I heard one person say, you know how at NASCAR there might be a couple hundred thousand people that show up there and somebody will say, well, the whole world was there. Well, obviously the whole world wasn't there. That's hyperbole. That's what John is doing here. It's just hyperbole. No, he's not, he's not exaggerating. He's not writing in a, in, in a way that would, would make us feel like it's hyperbole. So then what does it mean? What does for the whole world mean? Two things. Number one, the first thing that John is getting at is that it means that the The grace, the sacrifice, and the deliverance that Jesus offers is big enough, good enough, and powerful enough to save anyone who would come to him. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter who you are. If you come to him, his grace is sufficient. There's no restriction or limit on the grace of God or the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. No one could be disqualified because of their sin if they come to Jesus. Not one person. In other words, nobody has the ability to outsin God's grace. Here's the second thing, though, that it means. And this is especially important if you look at 
Uh, John recording in his gospel all of what Jesus taught and all of what Je- uh, John observed during those three years of, of Jesus' ministry, it's obvious that he's carried a lot of that over into this, into this letter. The second thing it means is that there is no nation, tribe, or people group that's excluded from God's invitation to salvation. The whole world is called to come to Jesus, though not all will. In this vein, just consider what is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. This is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and some people believed in him. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, some believed, but others got mad at Jesus, and they went to the, they went to the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and all of the, uh, all of the other professional religious people, to complain about Jesus and to try to figure out how we can kill this guy, We need to eliminate him, and killing him would be the best way to eliminate him. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, in a moment of clarity, he declared to his cohort, he said, listen, you need to understand that what Jesus is doing here is not bringing salvation just for his people and our people, Israel, but he's bringing salvation for every nation, tribe, and people group that there is. What Caiaphas is saying is that Jesus is on mission for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he makes that clear. And so John is also saying the same thing, the whole world. So what do we do with all this? Well, as we wrap, I want to talk about a couple of things that would certainly apply here, and we'll, we'll get at those couple of, couple of things by going back to uh, something I just said a few minutes ago. And here's what I said. While Christians do not live in sin, they never do become completely sinless. So this is the reality of the process and the tension between sanctification and the already but not yet. Sanctification and the already but not yet. So let's define what we, uh, what we mean by both of those things. If you recall, we defined sanctification in last week's message. It's an essential principle in the Christian life, the life of faith in Jesus. So sanctification is the everyday, lifelong process of understanding how sinful we are and then being freed from sin and being conformed to the image of God's Son. So that would be Romans 8. In other words, you and I never quite get to perfect in this life, but there should be, and probably is, in Christ, constant improvement, constant revelation, uh, constant understanding, and consistent transforming work in our lives. It's Leon Morris saying that, Part of the Christian experience is realizing more and more each day just how sinful we are and then accessing the Holy Spirit in us in order to mortify or to put to death that sin in our lives. To to mortify sin means to put it to death. So sanctification, some people use the word transformation. Sanctification comes about primarily by by the work of the Word of God as we read it and by the indwelling Holy Spirit living in us and guiding us. And by the way, I, I was... I've been talking about lately about how I don't read a lot of Christian books or uh, books by Christian authors too much anymore, I'm reading more histories and biographies, but I am reading a book right now by a Christian author. He's a pastor uh, down in Georgia, and he cited some research that said that the best way for a Christian to enter that process of sanctification and discipleship is actually the best way is to read the Word of God. There's all those other things that we need to do. We need to be in community. We need to pray. uh, All of those other things. But he says, first and foremost on that list is reading the Word of God. 
And so I've said this before. If you struggle to read the word of God, it's hard. It, you don't get it. You don't know where to start. You don't understand what's going on. Find somebody who is pretty good at reading the word of God and get with them. I can't tell you how many people I do that with and how helpful uh, that is. And I can't tell you how many other people are doing that together and how helpful that is. But reading the word of God is important to our sanctification because it's how we get to know who God is and who Jesus is and why he's essential to our salvation. And here's the thing about sanctification. Believe it or not, for those of you who have a desire to change the world. Okay, I'm, I'm around a lot of college students. Paradise Valley Community Church, Grand Canyon University. And, and you know, they're just not quite yet at that age where they're jaded or cynical yet. <laughs> and, and, and so I hear this all the time. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be the next Bono. I'm going to be the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay, first of all, Bono hasn't really changed. He'd be pretty cool, but he hasn't changed, really changed the world. Neither has Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But they're convinced. They're the ones that change. I'm going to change the world. Here's the thing. If you enter into a process of sanctification, here's what will happen. You will start changing your world. This little area of influence that you have, you will start changing that. And believe it or not, that has a multiplier effect that is... Probably even better than going out and trying to change the whole world and then getting discouraged and giving up. So sanctification can do that. It can change your world. You can be an influence in your world, and that will make a huge difference. The challenge, however, comes with this other part, the already but not yet. Admittedly, it gets tiring and challenging to live a life pursuing sanctification in Christ in the midst of a world that is corrupt, broken, and dark. That's the challenge of the already but not yet. The truth of our salvation in Jesus. We have an advocate, and he is a propitiation for our sins. The truth of our salvation in Jesus is that when God the Father looks at us, he sees someone who is righteous and holy. You're in. It's the end of the story. It's the end of the trial. The problem is, is that we're still here living in this world that's corrupt and dark and broken and challenging. That's the already, but not yet. We are waiting for Jesus to come to get rid of that not yet. And there's tension there, especially when we're working on sanctification. That's the already, but not yet. If you're in Christ, you're already saved. But the world is not yet redeemed. He hasn't come the second time to bring in the new Jerusalem. And so we live with the understanding of holiness, but the difficulty of brokenness all around us. And so admittedly, I will tell you, admittedly, this is going to sound kind of like a word from your sponsor, or it's going to sound a little bit self-serving, but it's also how Jesus called us to live in this sanctification and already but not yet tension. The church is essential in our efforts to be who we're called and empowered to be. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's the last thing that he told his disciples. Now, this is after the resurrection, before his ascension. Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. That's the church. The church makes disciples. The church teaches the word of God and proclaims the gospel. The church baptizes. 
This is the mechanism that Jesus has chosen to accomplish this sanctification in the tension of the already but not yet. That's our call and that's our mission. See, here's what we need to understand. The church is not a Jesus fan club. The church is not a Jesus fan club. Again, one of the challenges with the American church is there are a lot of people who kind of admire Jesus. Yeah, he was pretty cool. And, and they kind of like having somewhere to go on Sunday. And, and, and so they, they're, they're kind of a Jesus. Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah, they're kind of a Jesus fan. But that doesn't really work with Jesus. It, it, does anybody know what a parasocial relationship is? The number of people who have a parasocial relationship, well, you were in the first service, Caleb, so you know. Uh, the number of people who have a parasocial relationship with Jesus is one of the challenges in the church today. A par- By the way, we all have parasocial relationships. There isn't anybody who doesn't have a parasocial relationship. So what is it? Here's what it is. It's a relationship that you have with some public figure that you feel like you know really well because you've seen them so many times. You just you feel like you've gotten to know them almost to the point, and in some cases to the point, where you feel like you could walk up to them on the street if you ran into them and say, hey. Uh, anybody know the stand-up comedian Brian Regan? Okay, I've, I've watched everything that he's done, everything. YouTube videos, we've been to four or five of his uh, concerts, I guess what you call them. Uh, for 30 years, Jackie and I saw Brian Regan when he was doing stand-up in dumpy little clubs in Las Vegas, which, by the way, we were there on business, I want you to know. Okay. We've watched him for more than 30 years. and love. I, I, feel like I, have a re- I feel like I could walk up to Brian on the street and go, ah. and he'd know who I am. Same, same thing. I know I'm a Christian. I shouldn't admit this. I feel the same way about the band Heart, you know? Walk up to Ann Wilson, the lead singer, and go, Ann, it's me, Frank. I've seen you 32 times in concert. Don't you recognize me? She's like, call security. (laughs) Right now. Okay? We all have these parasocial relationships. A lot of people have a parasocial relationship with Jesus. They admire him. They affirm him. But they don't follow him. They're not engaged with him. Jesus even talks about this in Mark 7. When people come to him and they say, hey, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? We like you, Jesus. And he says, what? Department from me, because I never knew you. You weren't really a part of my discipleship. That's a parasocial relationship with Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to to get you to question your salvation in a way that makes you worried. I'm trying to get you to understand that engaging with Jesus is pretty essential. And that it's a good thing. And it's a joyous thing. And it's a thing that will bring about gratitude and joy and hope in your life that maybe you've never even felt before. Here's what John is getting it. Would Jesus know you or do you just have a parasocial relationship? Do you claim Jesus as your advocate and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the study of God's word, are you being transformed by faith? Or are you just somebody who claims to be walking in fellowship but is actually in darkness. 
John writes 1 John in order to lovingly encourage those who believe in Jesus to engage in the discipline of actually following him. Jesus has done it all for us. The question is, are we responding to that gift of grace by pursuing him in genuine relationship? Let's pray together. God, it is my prayer that all of us, we would all uh, be people who would take our engagement with you seriously. That That we would read and study your word and get to know you. That we would be people of prayer. That we would value community with one another. Even community that's messy and challenging and hard. That we would that we would value service to you and to our neighbor. And God, that we would live lives of gratitude and joy because of what you've done for us. God, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us through Jesus on the cross. Help us to live into that, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.